Our great God, we do thank you that you are the rock of ages. Jesus is that great cornerstone. We thank you that in Jesus we can achieve salvation, not by anything that we do, but all because of what Jesus has done. And we magnify his precious name. We'll always be thankful for what he did for us. Illumine us now, O Holy Spirit, as we look into your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. (coughs) But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. For Jesus, but Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman where she was in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. You know, Jesus has been teaching some hard sayings that many had difficult understanding and accepting. And we know that that the Pharisees and the scribes were always trying to find something to accuse Jesus. They hated him. And now they have come to Jesus. And these men, these scribes and these Pharisees, as Jess has aptly pointed out in his sermons the last several weeks, they were a self-righteous, hypocritical group of leaders. And Jesus, because he knew who they were, because he's God, he knows what's in the hearts of men. He knows what men are thinking. And he knew that this was a diabolical group. And he was always in conflict with these, this group of people. And they were always trying to find ways to trap him. And in this instance, they bring a woman who they say, we've caught in adultery, and 
They do their best to try to trap Jesus. Now, they were always trying to do this, and uh, we know that their motive, they cared less about this woman. They didn't care. Who they wanted was Jesus, and they used her to get at Jesus. Take a look at verse 6, and that proves the point, what their motive of bringing this woman in the first place. And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. That was their motive. So they were always constantly seeking to get at Jesus. And here's how they were trying to get at Jesus. If we can get Jesus to denigrate, to speak ill of the Mosaic law, then he will be guilty. He won't be the prophet. And they heard Jesus' preaching of forgiveness, multitude of times, and they thought, well, we have really put Jesus in a moral dilemma now because here's the point. Would 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 he uphold the Mosaic law about the death penalty for those who were found guilty in a court of law for adultery? Or would he repudiate the Mosaic law and let her go because he's compassionate and the people love his teaching on compassion? So you can imagine what was going on in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees. We got him this time. Oh, we got him. There's no way he's going to get out of this. He can't win. Well, here's the problem. Do you think you can outthink God you going to outthink the God man? I don't think so. And he will, he will always embarrass the scribes and the Pharisees. And once again, he's going to utterly embarrass them this time. Now, we've got to remember that he's dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were those who were called the experts in the law. They were the interpreters of the law. They were the so-called experts, the Pharisees, a sect who basically carried out the commands of how the scribes said what the law says. So now, with regard to how they were trying to get at Jesus, and remember what verse 6 says, they were trying to find a way to accuse him because they really believed he could not escape of the demands of the Mosaic law. Now, we've got to understand the Mosaic law was and still is the greatest law ever given to men. Deuteronomy 4 brings it out. Even the pagan nation said, these people, this law that was given to these people, the Jews, was a law of such magnitude that they never seen anything like it. Well, let's understand then what the Mosaic law says and how it applied in this particular case, particularly with reference to witnesses. Now, I want you to turn with me to to first turn to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. (laughs) 
Here's part of the Mosaic law. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 22. And let's look at verses 20. um, Start at um, 22 through verse 24. Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 24. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death. The girl because she did not cry out in the city and the man because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Now, let me just say this. Don't ever think that this law that was given to Moses is too severe. We got to remember, who gave this law? God gave this law. This is the law of the living God. We may ask, and I don't want to labor on this point very long. Why was adultery a capital offense? Well, one reason is that it is an attack upon the family and the family is of great importance to the living God. That's one reason. Nonetheless, this is the law given by the Lord himself, and everything that God says has to be true, has to be just, has to be right. It cannot be too harsh because God gave it. Now, the Pharisees said that this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And they said to Jesus, Moses commanded us to stone her to death. Notice they said, commanded. Now they said uh, to Jesus then, what do you say, Jesus? So Jesus, as we said earlier, knowing the thoughts of men, knowing their hearts, and when they ask him the question, what do you say, It says there in verse 6, Jesus stoops down to the ground and begins to write something in the dirt. Now, we're not told in the text what Jesus wrote. I'm going to give you what I think probably is what he wrote, but it doesn't say explicitly. But as we develop this, I think you may come to realize this is probably what he wrote and what happened in these men leaving. So here's what God requires in a capital crime. Adultery was a capital crime. God requires a conviction and that there must be the accurate testimony of two or more witnesses. Accurate testimony of two more witnesses. Now let's look at some other passages 
what I think Jesus might have been writing in the ground. Turn to Deuteronomy 17. Verses 6 and 7. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. You gotta have, you gotta have at least two witnesses for someone to be convicted. Now there is power in an eyewitness. And on the testimony of an eyewitness, two or more, you can, you can be put to death. You can be stoned to death. So it goes to show the power of a witness. But then we're going to see what God requires of witnesses here. And now notice it says, those, uh, it says, will be able to be the first. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first to cast the stone. Turn over to Deuteronomy 19 and look at verses 15 through 21. Very similar, but it adds something to it. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses. A matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days, and the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then ye shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, what we see here is that the judges will take the testimony of the two witnesses. Now, remember, every fact is confirmed by two or more witnesses. But they recognize there could be false witness bear, I mean, false witnesses, uh, liars who have motives to want to put to death the accused, okay? So they would judge thoroughly, and if it turns out, if it turns out that those witnesses lied in a capital case, which is adultery here is a capital uh, crime, if they lied, 
What should be done to them according to this text? They should be stoned, right? No. Is that fair to stone these witnesses? Is that fair? Is it just? I would think it's just, is it not? Because remember, their testimony can execute the accused. So by their false testimony, they were getting ready to murder somebody, right? Therefore, they deserve to get what would have been uh, given out to that accused, in this case, the death penalty. So the witness better be right, and the judges would thoroughly investigate to corroborate that all the stories are lining up uh, before they would uh, follow through and let someone be executed. Now, I'm going to come back to verse uh, 7 in John. If you go back to John 8, it says, when they, they persisted in asking Jesus, you know, what, what do you say, Jesus? I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I want to bring out two more passages that are important. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19. Now, Jesus was always aware of the traps that the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to set against him. They were always aware of that. He was. And uh, he wanted to make it clear to them, I did not come to destroy the law of Moses. Look what he says in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. Some translation says to confirm is a good rendering of that as well. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, I came not to do away with Moses, but to actually accentuate Moses as the great lawgiver. And turn over to Matthew 15 with me. I know Jess alluded to this this morning. Look at uh, Matthew 15, verses 1 through 4. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, and why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father 
or mother, let him be put to death. Now, this, this is the most loving man who's ever walked the earth. Whoever speaks ill against his father or mother, whoever curses them, ought to be put to death. You know what Jesus was doing? He quoted Exodus 21, 17. Let me just read that. You can turn there if you want. Exodus 21, 17. And he who curses his father or his mother shall truly be put to death. You know, there are some today, even in reformed circles, that say that because of the new covenant, and especially Jesus, that he has somehow set aside the penal sanctions of the Mosaic law. Does that sound like he set it aside in Matthew 15? I don't think so. He says those who curse their parents ought to die. That's what he said. Then he goes on and really rakes the Pharisees over the coals, metaphorically, of course, by saying, oh, you you have money that you could help your needy parents and you are saying, no, I can't give this money to my parents to help them out because I've pledged it to the church, okay? And therefore, Jesus says, you hypocrites, you have just dishonored, you've violated the law of God, you've broken the fifth commandment. Now, they may not have cursed their their parents, But Jesus goes to say, anybody who curses their parents should die. Remember, I didn't come to abolish the law, he says, but to fulfill the law. So now, in this regard, let me mention this. When Jesus was brought, after he engaged, was brought to that mock trial that the Sanhedrin engaged in, by the way, do you remember what they did in, the, in this mock trial? They brought in false witnesses. Bunch of hypocrites. They want to execute this Jesus, but they got to convict him. So what do they do? They, they bring in false witnesses. This whole Sanhedrin is a bunch of murdering thugs who brought in these false witnesses to condemn Jesus. Now, when Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate, Pilate recognizes that they were jealous. In fact, John 18.31 says, Pilate understood that the uh, Pharisees, they were envious of Jesus. That's why they're at it. He, they didn't fool Pilate one least bit. And they said, you, you, um, we want you to put him to death. And Pilate says, well, you've got your law. Judge him by your law. And here's what they said. We can't judge him by our law because we are under your Roman subjugation and you don't let us do that. So we can't. So we want you to execute him. Back to John 8, 7 here. 
Jesus says to those who are insisting on him, Jesus, what do you say we ought to do? Jesus says, well, cast the first stone. Every every indication since Jesus will not nullify the law of God, will uphold it in jot and tittle, okay, go ahead. But before you, before you do it, then he, now here's what's interesting. In the Greek, it brings this out. It says, he who is without sin, it's not just any sin whatsoever, that doesn't make sense. The text means, well, in the Greek it says, uh, the sin, meaning the adulterous sin. He who is without the adulterous sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. If you are without that particular sin, go ahead. Now, What happened? Well, look at verse nine, what happened when Jesus said that. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the midst. Now remember, either two things are happening here as to why they begin to file out. When Jesus says, go ahead and cast the first stone. Either these men were not witnesses, like they said we were, she was calling the very act of adultery, or they were, they were also those who were guilty of that particular sin. Now, if you were particular, if you were guilty of that, any sin you're accusing someone, you would be executed for being one who was guilty of transgressing that law. So either one of those things was happening and they began to file out. And it could be, like I said, I'm not surprised. It could have been that Jesus wrote in the ground, Deuteronomy 17, with reference to the witnesses that he is without the sin, you can cast the first stone. They realized, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, if he's gonna hold us that much to the law, I don't think we wanna go ahead. And they left. You know, so like I said earlier, what was to be done to false witnesses? They were to receive the penalty for bearing false witness. So in this case, if they're accusing someone of adultery and it's not true or they're guilty of the same sin, they die. So you can understand maybe, maybe we don't want to go through with this after all. You know what God says there in in Deuteronomy 9, what you should do to a perjurer? Because that's what a false witness is, is a perjurer. Today in courts of law, perjury means nothing. It's on the law books, but rarely is anyone ever punished for, for perjury. 
You know what God says, the reason that you go and take that false witness and you go execute them so that it will put fear into the hearts of all of Israel. They would never again do such an evil thing. What evil thing? Bear false witness. That's the evil thing they'll never do again. You know, people say, well, the death penalty is not a deterrent against uh, murder. I say, seriously, you really think that? Oh, it absolutely is. Let me ask you this. If you're driving down 400, I don't know what the speed limit is at 400. Let's say it's 65, which it might be. And you're going 75 with everybody else. (laughs) And you see the patrol car over here. What is your first response? I'll tell you what's happened to me. And I look down and I'm I'm going over 65. I'm going 75 like everybody else. I take my foot off the gas pedal and start braking. Why? I, all I did was see this guy. Well, what, what motivated me and maybe you to take your foot off the gas pedal? You don't want the $200 fine, do you? That's why you did it. So let's just escalate that. That's just for breaking a, a, a law, a speed limit law. You have that threat over your head that if you bear false witness in a capital murder case and you die, you'll think twice about that. And the, the reason that um, God says it'll put fear in the hearts of people, you know, in the old days, you may have read uh, historical records where when there was a public hanging, the family went out to see the public hanging. It was a huge event in some towns. And, you know, they went to see a guy getting hanged. Now, here's the value of, of a public execution. So here's this guy getting ready to, to hang, and Daddy is there with, with Johnny. He says, Johnny, see that? If you do something guilty of an offense like that, That's going to happen to you. You just look at this for a minute. Do not do something that will get you hanged as well. Public uh, executions are of a great valuable service. They really are to put fear in the hearts of Israel. God says it'll put fear, and he's the creator, right? He knows how we think. He knows it'll create fear. That's why we do it. To, to tell you something on a, on a lesser case, years ago at Calcedon Christian School when it was down in Dunwoody, I was teaching Bible. And uh, one day before classes got started, all the kids would get out in the, in the back on the parking lot and play. And one day, I, I don't remember the name, I'm going to call him Billy, all right? Billy comes in, he said, Mr. Otis, Johnny went out and he, I forgot what Johnny supposedly did to him. I said, okay, you, you said that Johnny did this to you, huh, Billy? He said, yeah. Okay, that's what you say. And uh, what, what, what's going to happen if he really slugged you out there in the parking lot? Then you're going to be in Mr. Lester's office. The principal. 
And uh, the principal was notorious for the uh, board. You know, when you, you enrolled a child at Calston Christian School, you gave them the authority to administer corporal punishment if it was needed. <laughs> and my youngest child had his occasions with the principal's office. And uh, he said, we all feared the principals. Because when they came out crying, he says, oh, no, I'm next. So I said, I said to Johnny, or Billy here, I said, Billy, here's what we're going to do. I may have read him something out of the Bible like this. I said, what we're going to do, well, here's what God says. We're going to go out, and I'm going to go, and, and, and we're going to find out who else agrees with you that, that were eyewitnesses of, uh, of, of Johnny slugging you, Okay. And we're going to ask some people. Now, if it turns out, Billy, that that really didn't happen, you know where you're going? I said, now, before we go out into the parking lot, I'm going to ask you one last time. Do you want to, do you want to continue with this? Did, did Johnny really hit you? He goes, well, I don't know. <laughs> I said, oh, so, so you, don't want to, you don't want to pursue it anymore, do you? So he wasn't sure. He may have been out trying just to get uh, Johnny in trouble. But it was fear was put in him when he realized if his witness, if his story didn't hold up, he was going to get the same punishment. Now back to John 8. The, all these men leave and Jesus looks up to the woman and says to the woman, look what he says in verse 10. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Now that's an important phrase. Did no one condemn you? That's a legal term. And she said, no one, Lord, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. So what we see here, Jesus is saying, how is he going to condemn her? Because there are no more witnesses. He says, then I'm not going to, condemn you either. Now, to, to show you, I will mention this in a, in a case, a true story. You've heard me talk about Hannah Overton in Corpus Christi, accused of killing a foster child and will get convicted in a horrible uh, trial of capital murder uh, for omission and she will be sentenced to life in prison without parole. She got a worse sentence than Charles Manson. Now, when the conviction came down, it can be overturned if the judge, before they send, he has to approve the conviction of the jury. So there's a hearing. So in this hearing, 
we have this Dr. Cortez. He was the medical doctor that was attending the child at the time. And then you had the prosecuting attorney that was trying to convict Hannah Overton. Well, did end up convincing the jury that she ought to be, she should be uh, in prison. The doctor said in his testimony, when he got up on the stand, took the oath that you're going to bear, you're going to tell the truth, all the truth, so help you God. You could see he was mad. You know why he was mad? Because he said he was going to be a witness for the prosecution against Hannah. And he said when when he saw what the charges were, he went to Sandra Eastwood, the prosecuting attorney. He said, I hope you're going to have some other penalty besides this because I don't think she intended to hurt that child. So he gives his testimony that he, uh, he didn't think there was this intent. And he said, I told the, the prosecuting attorney this. Well, three hours later, we get to hear the prosecuting attorney, Sandra Eastwood, get up, and here's what she said. Dr. Cortez never came to me saying such a thing like this. The minute she said that, Hannah Overton's pastor sitting in front of me, Rod Carver, he, he about jumped up. He couldn't believe it. I about jumped up, and I immediately, here's what I thought, Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 19. I, said, I thought to myself, someone has just lied in a capital murder case. And I want to know who it is. So I go back home. I'm, I'm pastor of the mission work there. This, is, this was a high-profile case, by the way, in, in Texas. And the prosecuting attorney, she had goals later on to want to rise in the ranks in uh, the, the district attorney's office. Later, it will come out. She said to her assistant, I will do anything to win this case. So, the, the, I sit down and I write two letters, one to Dr. Cortez and one to Sandra Eastwood, the prosecuting attorney. I quote some of these passages and I said to this, in, jet, in, in a brief form, I said, there's a dark cloud hanging over this city. I said, I'm very familiar with this case. And when I heard y'all's testimony One of you has lied, and here's what God says should happen to someone who's lied. I said, one of you needs to repent. (laughs) And you know, this is what God says. So about a week or so goes by. This was near the Christmas season. One of the hospitals that dealt with that child uh, and they, how they handled Hannah was despicable, this, this local children's hospital. And I had caller ID, and I looked at the caller, the phone rings, and the caller ID comes up. I see it's this hospital. I was getting ready to tell them what I thought of their hospital because I thought they were out to raise money for the Christmas season. So I was going to tell them what I thought, and it wasn't going to be good. 
They were not going to get a positive review from this pastor. But it wasn't the hospital. It was Dr. Cortez. He says, Pastor Otis, I got your letter. I appreciate your letter. And as God is my witness, I want you to know my testimony was true. I said, Doctor, I appreciate, really appreciate you you calling me saying that. I didn't think it was you anyway. <laughs> but I really appreciate you calling. Later on, when Hannah will fail in her appeal, the first level of appeals, the news uh, stations go to Sandra Eastwood and they say, do you think, do you feel exonerated now that the first level of appears Appeals has failed and the Hannah Overton conviction is going to be uh, upheld. She says, I do. But I did have a pastor call down the wrath of God on me. (laughs) She never mentioned my name, but I knew exactly who she was talking about because she got that letter too. And you know what will lead to uh, Hannah Overton's exoneration after seven years? When Hannah's lawyer will re-examine the case go through the files after five years and find out the prosecution hid key evidence called exculpatory evidence. And if you're guilty of, uh, you've got to tell the defense that you have something. You don't do that, that's dismissal immediately. They withheld information and that will lead to her getting a retrial and then eventually getting exonerated by the Supreme Court of Texas. But here's the thing. The law needs to be upheld. And we do need to know a difference between a civil magistrate and how they deal with situations and how a family or an individual or a church is to deal with it. Notice what Jesus said. Look at verse 11. Someone tell me, what did he say to her and what do you think Jesus knew? What did he say to the woman? After everybody left, after he said, I, can't, I don't condemn you either. That seems to know that he knew she was guilty, wasn't it? <laughs> but she couldn't, she couldn't get convicted. Because where are our accusers? They're not there. You know, when the prosecution drops the case, it's over. And when they all walked out of whatever Jesus wrote, the prosecution has given up. And Jesus says, well, then I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. Jesus, in other words, was willing, and she calls him Lord. There's evidence, others think, that she probably learned from this, recognized Jesus as who he was, and Jesus would forgive her. You know, I can... uh, an individual can forgive sin. A family can forgive sins of someone. Church can forgive sins. But the state is never to forgive sins. Read Romans 13. Very clear. 
You got three institutions in human society. You got the individual, you, you've got the, the family, you've got the church, and you have the state. And they all have their own jurisdictional powers. The church has no ability to bear the sword. It cannot execute or should not execute people. That's not its function. The only one who can execute someone is the state because the scripture says that the civil magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. Their role is to be, as the scripture says, to be a terror to the evildoer. And so the scripture says, Romans 13 says, if you don't break the law, you got nothing to fear. But if you do break it, and it's like a murder case, you better fear because they have the right to execute you, but not the church, not the family. Jesus can forgive him, but he's not a civil authority. But he, all indication was he wouldn't let the process continue, but he knew that they were guilty, the uh, Sadducees, the Pharisees and the scribes, he knew they were guilty in some way. I'll end with this true story. Does anyone, everyone, has anyone known the name Nigel Lee? Okay, Kay knows Nigel Lee. He's, um, he was a friend of Rush Dini's. I got to know Nigel Lee for a short time. Very scholarly, wrote all these books, knew nine languages, is ridiculous. Do his devotions in four different languages, is, it was crazy. Well, Nigel Lee, grew up in South Africa. And lo and behold, one day a thief broke into his father's house and murdered his father in the act of committing thievery. He was caught and was going to be tried and executed. So Nigel Lee has lost his father to this thief murderer. You know what Nigel Lee did? He goes to the jail cell and talks to the man who murdered his father and shared the gospel with the man. And you know what happened? The man repented of his sins and gave his life to Jesus. And Nigel Lee said, but you know what? You do know you need to die. He says, yes, I do. But at least I'm a, I'm a forgiven sinner now and will be in heaven. He says, that's right. And they executed the man. So here we had Jesus forgiving her, knowing she was guilty of adultery, but he embarrasses the scribes and the Pharisees, as usual, saying, oh, you think you know the law? Then cast the first stone, you without the sin. So Jesus upholds the sanctity and the glory of the law of God and shows mercy to this woman who was guilty, but whose life probably was changed forever. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you that you, the majesty of your word, the, uh, the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ, who upheld your law in the f- most minute detail, and yet a, God, uh, a, a savior of such magnitude that he could forgive a sinner. Lord, help us to cherish Jesus and to cherish your law. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.